Welcome back to another episode of Fret Buzz the Podcast. My name is Aaron Sefcik. And I'm Joe McMurray. And today we have a special guest, uh, Steve Black. Uh, he's done tons and tons of interviews uh, with famous musicians over the years. He's been in the business for 30 plus years doing radio. Uh, he's got a wonderful show called Chop Shop Radio. Um, he's got a book out. We're so glad to have you, Steve. Thank you for joining us here at Fret Buzz. Yeah, for sure. You can't have a guitar show and then decline an offer from Fret Buzz. I mean, that's <laughs> just kind of works hand in hand. Right, right, right. Awesome. Well, yeah, let's jump right in. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and uh, my, I guess my first question would be, uh, it started way, way back in, I guess, 1989 with Sabotage. Yeah, I suppose it, it really did. That was, uh, I recall being at a radio station and them asking, hey, would you interview this band? And I didn't really even know them uh, at the time. Right. And, and CD players were just coming out. Some of my friends had them, but I didn't have one yet. But I went out and I bought the CD. Uh, the station, of course, had one. And that's when I first listened to the band. And that's when I did my very, very first interview. Uh, yeah, back in 1989 with... Uh, Chris and Chris and John, of course, uh, yeah. Chris, Chris Oliva is no longer with us, but but John and Chris are still around and in a band called uh, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. That's so, awesome. TSO, man. Love that. They're yeah. Cool. And I still stay in touch with those guys to this day, 30 years ago. I still, <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, that is. Crazy. And by the way, the interview was awful. Oh, my God. I'm, <laughs> you know, they could tell that I didn't know what I was doing, my first interview. So they saved it. I let them do all the talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. So you went and really studied, like you listened to the album, and did you go in with stuff prepared to ask them about? Uh, one of the things I think made me a little bit different than other radio hosts was I never really wrote down questions. My, my research was listen to the music. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, back then there wasn't really access to the internet anyway. I mean, maybe no. if you had, what was the first one, Netscape or right, right, <laughs> you know, right. whatever they had back then, you you might be able to get on a website or two yeah. <laughs> about cooking, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, I didn't. You know, I was never that guy who cared who your girlfriend was. I just wanted to listen to the music and ask questions about the music, how it was created. How did you get into radio in the first place? Well, that's a, um, I guess we've got plenty of time. So I'll, <laughs> I'll give you the kind of the fun version of the story. Yeah, yeah. I had gone to school to be an audio engineer. Okay. So I actually was a certified audio engineer and started doing just little things here and there in recording studios wherever I could just to, you know, internships, cut your teeth, all that kind of stuff. And somebody called me and said, hey, I know you know some stuff about audio. Uh, we're doing a television show and we're filming an orchestra and how do I make an orchestra sound good with two mics? Oh my. Wow. Of course you, you can't. Right. <laughs> so the answer right. was you can't. Right. Uh, so I borrowed a bunch of gear, whatever I had and friends had, and I went and I mic'd as, as much of the orchestra as I could. And I helped them with their TV show wow. in exchange. They said, how about we teach you about television since you're teaching us about sound. So I started doing camera operation. And there was this really cranky old man who had a um, political talk show and his name was Ted Johnson. And he was not necessarily mean spirited, but, but just not the nicest guy in the world. Right. <laughs> and so nobody wanted to work a show, but me. 
Right. And one day he said something along the lines of, why do you put up with me? And I said, well, what are you going to do? Fire me? I work for free. Right. Yeah. And it blew his mind. He's like, you don't get paid? I'm like, no. And he said, what do you think about radio? I said, love radio. He said, I- I'm the general manager at a radio station called Z-Rock. Why don't you come in tomorrow? I'll give you a tour of the radio station. Wow. So I went in. I said, you know, it's Mr. Johnson here. And they took me into his office. And he goes, by the way, before I take you around and show you the radio station, I want you to sign that piece of paper because anybody who will put up with me for free works for me. And that was it. I've worked in radio pretty much ever since. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. You sacrificed for a little bit and it really paid off. I, I didn't know, you know, any better. I mean, really, I was just hungry for knowledge, whether that be TV, radio, production, uh, recording studio. I just wanted to know how everything worked. Right, right. Yeah, you just want to get your hands on it and in it and be able to do it every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's really the key to being successful at just about anything, to be in it because you really, really care about actually how it works, not like because you want to get famous or make money. You wanted to know how to how it all worked. That's great. Yeah. And it's a discussion that comes up often in our interviews, especially with people who do more than one thing. Uh, but when you get into the whole circle of art, whether you're, you're writing a book or taking a photograph, you know, painting, presenting a radio show, whatever it is, yeah. uh, the thing that connects with humans the easiest is the truth. And so when you're willing to just go out there and be honest with people, maybe you don't know something, but that's okay. We don't all know everything. Right. So when you're honest, it usually connects with people. Yeah. And and so that's been sort of my approach. So okay. where, where did you go from, you're working at the radio station and how did you, did he immediately set you up as a host personality or were you working doing the running the board? Yeah, I was running the board and doing production since I was familiar with the engineering part, making commercials, recording uh, is where I started. And actually, my first air shift, it was kind of funny, uh, was a, because of a blizzard. Uh, the next person couldn't get into work. Oh, nice. I mean, just How did you get to work? Everywhere. I was already there. I got uh. there before the blizzard and I was working and I was thinking like, well, I can't go home in this. I'm just going to sleep on the couch. Like, this is crazy. Right. And then I, I got the call like, hey, the next person can't come in. Um and I think this is kind of a funny story. The guy says, uh, have you ever uh, been on the air before? And I said, no. And he says, all right, well, tonight's the night, you know, so, so go for it. And uh, the program director called me back about an hour, hour and a half later and goes, you sound great. I thought you said you'd never done this before. I said, oh, no. I said, I've never been on the air before. I've been doing this since I was three years old in my bedroom. Right. <laughs> like, I've been doing it my whole life. Right. Just nobody ever heard it before. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was it. And uh, the word he used was a natural. He said, I, I just, I think you're a natural. And instead of, you know, sort of hiding you away in the production room, let's, let's work on this and let's, you know, move you towards being on the air. Wow. That's great. What a great opportunity. Yeah. Awesome. Is it, what, what is it that makes you natural? Is it your ability to speak, uh, like not do what I'm doing right now, <laughs> to be able to, to <laughs> say what's on your mind fluidly and, you know, to be entertaining about it at the same time. What are the qualities that make, make a good radio host or radio personality? Well, they're like everything else, you know, there's, uh, there's not just one way to do something. There's a bunch of different ways. Um, one of my early best friends in radio would write out every single thing he was going to say. 
he would write it all out and have it in front of him. And I would write out nothing. I just, it was more of an improvisation based on, you know, all the time I'd spent listening to music or whoever I'd been talking to or whatever I'd been doing. But when you listened, if you didn't know, if you weren't in the room, you couldn't tell the difference between the two of us. You had no idea that one person was reading and the other one wasn't. So how you prepare and, and how you deliver, I, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. The, the key to me, again, which goes back to art, is just be yourself. You know, like when I was six, seven, eight, 15, 16, I would just bring people over to the house and just share music with them because I loved it. Oh, my God, you have to hear this band. Nobody else has heard this band. And I'm still the same way, except now, dear God, I'm over 50. So <laughs> That's all right, man. You still got that passion. That's, that's what lit the fire in the first place. That's great. That's yeah. great. That's, it's helpful to hear about this because we, you know, I haven't been on air except for on this podcast, really. And so this is, I'm, I'm used to being on stage performing. I'm, I'm more of a musician and less of a radio host, but I've been learning that it's, it's similar to being on stage. It's just a completely different stage. Um, and it's, it's a learning experience. We listen back to old episodes and I, you know, I hear things that I did, even just little things like hearing myself say, uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. Middle, you know, responding to people, some things you just learn on air, you just don't do. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of that is listening back to yourself, just like mm -hmm. anything else. It takes some degree of practice, whether you have uh, a, a natural, uh, what's the word that people, aptitude, like you may have a natural aptitude for something, but if you don't practice it, it's not going anywhere. Right. So, you know, it's about that. And I think some of that plays into being on stage as well. You have to be able to kind of carry the the audience along with you and and kind of bring them into your circle and get that that personal feel between you and the audience on stage as well. Whether you're doing it at a small gig or on a huge stadium, you kind of have to, I mean, obviously on a huge stadium, it's a little bit harder because, you know, you don't get that personal connection as much, but you still have to go about doing that. Which is funny because I feel far more comfortable uh being on a big stage, like I just did, an, you know, every year I do a charity uh, introduction for Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So I'm up on stage in front of 17, 18,000. Yeah. I'm more comfortable there than I am being at the local club in front of eight. <laughs> I just, yeah. I don't know why, because it becomes, the, the mass becomes one thing right. as opposed to a bunch of individuals. Right, so just, right. Just the way it is. Yeah. And, and here's an interesting, this is more on the science side, but this is kind of an interesting thing. You know how certain people who have a stutter can sing with no stutter right. because it's a different part of the brain? Uh. I have dyslexia. Not horrible. It's mild, but I have it, and it's especially bad with numbers. Mm -hmm. But if I'm presenting, if I'm on the air and I'm presenting, it goes away. It's a different part of the brain because it's a performance of some, of some nature. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That kinda, yeah. It kind of connects with what we were talking about we had a bass player on and we were getting into talking about how music has healing properties. Cause I play at retirement homes and for folks with mem memory loss and memory disorders. And it really does make them, they can go from looking like they're staring off into space to they all of a sudden they come alive and they start singing the words and the, their eyes light up. It's really amazing what it can do. Performance, yeah, I, music or, you know, whatever you perform. Yeah. I'm not sure who said it first, but I've said it many times since. Music is the language of the soul. If the soul could speak a language, its language is music. Yep. I've always yeah. said music is a universal language. We all speak it. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other universal language, uh, this I love. Uh, a note sounds the same in every language. You know what else does? 
laughter. Oh, oh yeah. It matters not where you're from. Laughter sounds exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. All right. So, okay. Yeah. So coming out of uh, the radio station uh, and how long it's so, okay. Let me take a step back. You're based out of Detroit. Yeah. Okay. So we got a snowstorm and you're doing radio there. Where did it go from there? Uh, my first on air was in Flint, Michigan, which is closer to where I actually grew up. Okay. Um, after that, the station, you know, went dark, the owner couldn't make any money and it disappeared. And, you know, a bunch of odd jobs working overnight. There was a very short stint, uh, actually working undercover for the police, which was really weird. I mean, just, <laughs> there were some strange moments going on, but got to do what you got to do, man. <laughs> yes. Uh, so another station opened up in Detroit that was the same format, same delivery as the station in Flint. And so I went down and I, I interviewed for it. And I don't know where the brashness came from because I'm not that guy today, but I remember telling the program program director during the interview, uh, basically, I know more about this stuff than you do, so you need to hire me, <laughs> which I thought I'd never hear from him again, and I didn't hear from him for three or four weeks. But when he called, he said, by the way, that sat with me, and I realized you know more about this than I do. I need you. and Because wow. he was a jazz guy. I mean, he knew and understood programming. Right. He just didn't know and understand rock and roll, which is where I was from. Right. Uh, so that brought me down to Detroit. And I've been in this market pretty much ever since. I mean, just a ton of different stops, <laughs> a handful of different stations, but all pretty much in Detroit now. Okay. Wow. I have to ask my family if they hear you on the radio because my, my mom's side of the family is all from Detroit. I was just up there a few weeks ago. Make sure yeah. if they're tuning in for the first time that it's uh, – be prepared if they tune in in the morning because Dave and Chuck the Freak might frighten them. Okay, I'll give them, I'll give them a warning. <laughs> I don't think my cousins would care. Yeah, might freak out your mom a little bit. <laughs> it already sounds interesting. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. How was the, uh, the blizzard, or not the blizzard, the freezing cold this week? I wouldn't know. Minus 30? I was on a ship in Mexico. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, right. The Chop Shop is a media partner with uh, Shiprocked. So uh, every year we go on a music cruise and it's my job to interview a bunch of musicians and uh, take photos of the bands and all that kind of stuff. So I got to see I Prevail, uh, which was fantastic. So much power. Right. Uh, Wilson, who are, you know, they're from Detroit anyway, so they're just friends and buds. Uh, that's where I hooked up with Tremonti. I had a great in-depth interview with um, Head. I don't know if you guys are Corn fans or not. but Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that was really cool. Uh, and we were gone like the entire time. It was minus 40. So oh, <laughs> it worked out really great. Yeah. Wow. So you, you obviously get to meet and greet a ton of people uh, doing what you do. Is that something that you set up or is that something your company sets up? How does that all go down? Yeah, I decided there were a couple of different ways when I got into syndication, uh, how to do it. And I decided to just own my own show. Okay. And then work in partnerships with other companies, with, with syndicators. So it really all comes down to, to me. Uh, I started setting things up originally. And once you've done it, once you kind of get in, you know, the wheel sort of turns, once you're inside the turning wheel, it, it has its own momentum. Yeah. Uh, and you get a reputation. You know, bands get to know, oh, man, every time I interview that guy, he's good. He actually listens to the record. He knows what the hell's going on. And right. so they... 
you know, I've had, um, I can or cannot, depending on what you guys want, say the name of the band, but there was a band in particular who told me, you know, whenever I see my day sheet and I see your name on it or Pierre Robert, who's at WMMR, I know mm-hmm. it's going to be a good day. It's like you two are always prepared. You always, you know, the interviews are fantastic with you guys. So well, wow. made me feel good. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah. What, what band was that? Uh, Shine Down. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. That's very cool. Do you pick all the music that you want to play on your radio station and do you have bounds that you have to stay within from the company? Uh, as far as syndication goes, when I'm doing the Chop Shop, which airs on, you know, 25, 30 radio stations across the country, that's all me. I decide what I'm going to play. I decide when I'm going to play it, who I'm going to talk to. That's for those two hours. That's me. When I'm live on WRAF, like I was earlier today, that's that comes with the playlist. You know, that's me presenting the songs in the order that they've pre-selected and, you know, I still determine what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it, but yeah, they, they pick the music now because of my history and the number of years doing it, you know, if there's something that doesn't make sense, uh, they're okay with me changing it, but Mm. only because I have a track record of making changes that make sense. Right. (laughs) With your, I mean, say you've got a, how many different play, like if you've got a two hour show, are you coming up, spending the whole week kind of preparing for that? Th- listening to music and being like, ah, oh, I think I haven't played this in a while. What's your kind of, how do you go about doing that? And how, what's uh, your timeline? Yeah, I have a couple of benchmarks in the show. Um, so we'll talk about the active rock version first. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have two interviews within the show. One is in the first hour and one's in the second hour. Um, so I know I'm going to play a song from that band in the first hour to go with the interview. Mm -hmm. Then I do a segment called the guitar list where I name off random guitar players and get the, whoever guitarist I'm talking to, to react to, yes, I bought those albums. No, I never listened to that guy. Uh, Yeah. I listened to him, but he wasn't an influence, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then whichever reaction was the best, I play a song from that band. So it's uh, on the spot kind of you're, it's not planned. Right. Uh, unrehearsed reactions. That's how I refer to that segment. Yeah. And then I have your a, whole mantra. Yeah. Right. I was just going to say he's, he's yeah. improv, man. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Always has been. <laughs> I do a segment called the founding fathers where it's basically a, a newer band covering an older band, but instead of just playing the song, I actually go back and play clips of the original song and talk about when the guitarist was born and how many bands they were in before this band and how many guitarists they influenced. And then after you've gotten about a two minute taste of, of the background of that band, then boom, here's the cover version. Wow. You know? Uh, so way to do it. Yeah. Um, I do something called the all-star salute. Uh, since I'm interviewing guitarists every single week and asking them about other guitarists, I then collect those. So like the one that aired this weekend was, a bunch of different people talking about Zach Wild. So there's like two minutes of all these other guys telling you why they love Zach Wild, and then I play two songs from Zach Wild. Right. So That's once cool. I program the benchmarks, then I go in and I fill in the rest of the show. Wow. I know I want a certain number of brand new songs because my passion is still breaking. You know, oh my god, I found this band. You have to hear it. So I'll, I'll put those in, and then I go to the news and see, you know, who. Oh well, there was just uh, you know, Kiss did this or. Or somebody else did that, so I'll put in a kiss song, or I'll put in a whatever, and 
and and then because those are obvious talking points since they're doing something news related. And then that's how I built the show. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. And, I mean, is that a, you have a new show each week? Yeah. Every week. Okay. <laughs> wow. And I do an active rock version of the show and I do a classic rock version of the show. And then I also do a third show called classic rock live, which I don't host. I just, I program it and write it and it's hosted by Pierre Robert at WMMR in Philadelphia. So that's my Monday through Friday, and then I'm live on uh, the regular radio on Saturday and Sunday. So, so do you tend to go towards the rock, hard rock um, artists? Is that something that you are more interested in? Yeah, what I like about the concept of the Chop Shop is that it's incredibly inclusive. And when you think of syndicated radio, almost every show is exclusive just by its own nature. Right. If you do, you know, House of Hair, you can really only play bands from that era. Right. If you're doing, you know, a all metal show, you pretty much have to stick to metal. But to do a show that's based and centered around guitar and people who use it, that's pretty much every band that's ever existed. Right. So it, it is super inclusive. I can do I can play, you know, a band like uh, Hinder that doesn't have hardly any lead guitar whatsoever. Or then I can jump into anything Tom Morello does, which is over the top and crazy. Right. And and it all fits because just welcoming everybody uh, uh, to the family. But I, instead of asking questions specifically to the singer or the drummer, I try to ask the questions to the guitars. But I never get so over that. Like, I've never asked anybody what gauge strings they use. <laughs> Not right. that there's anything wrong with that. Right, but, right, 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 right. But for radio, you know, they um, I forget, again, which program director told me this, but it really stuck. It's called broadcasting for a reason. You're trying to reach a broad audience. And what I love about podcasting, and one of the reasons I do a podcast, is it is essentially narrow casting. It is you pick your niche, but instead of one city listening, it's the entire world. Right. Uh, so I like it. In, in a way, it's narrow casting, and I, I just get a huge enjoyment out of doing it. Yeah. It's nice to to geek out about the details of the things you care about that you know, non-musician might not want to know what kind of strings that that guitarist used but you know if you're podcasting if you're trying to speak to people who are musicians who do care about that we want right. to be the kind of place where we can talk about what gauge strings he used and how that allowed him to bend the notes like he did or whatever absolutely right create yeah, a certain feel or create a certain tone yeah mm -hmm. have you touched on that topic of just how much tone is in the fingers how much of it is flesh <laughs> and how little of it is is the wood and the wire and the electronics and the amp and no oh, we get into all of that yeah <laughs> i mean i mean that's where it originates from is is the actual fingers and and how you apply your specific technique to the fretboard uh and that's how we get literally hundreds if not thousands of different tones uh across the field over the many 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 decades that we've had yeah, um, but then we've also had um, interviews with engineers, electrical engineers, and talking about how a lot of that tone, yes, comes out of the fingers specifically first, but then the whole signal chain definitely plays a key role into that as well. Whether it's a certain kind of guitar, a certain kind of wood, a cabinet, all cabinets resonate differently. Whether it's the circuitry and how you can change the circuitry and do different kind of resistors or capacitors, and yeah, we've gotten into all of that. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we love that kind of stuff i mean that's how you get to really know 
a player. Like you listen to somebody, and you're like, how do they sound like that? And sometimes you really have to get into those nitty gritty details. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But even still, like uh, I know as a, as an engineer, um, it doesn't matter if I take Zach Wilde's exact setup on stage and, and replicate it to a T. It's not going to come out the same because he had a specific technique on his fingers. And it's the same thing with engineering. You know, I could look at, you know, Chris Lord Algie or uh, Chad Blake or any of these, you know, really big guys who've done some amazing albums and I can get all of their settings on, on their board, you know, how much compression he used here. And he, you know, used this frequency here and whatnot like that. And I can get exactly the same sound, but it's not going to be the same because he yeah. does it a specific way. Um, yeah. and, and it's all in his fingers and how he hears through his ears. Yeah. Uh, and it's not going to be the same for me. So yeah, it's, it's very unique to all of us. Uh, Ted Nugent gave me a fantastic example. So I'll share the story because if this helps uh, strip it down to basics, uh, I worked with Ted for about two years, by the way, but okay. <laughs> how was that <laughs> well <laughs> ex exhilarating and difficult <laughs> yeah right <laughs> that sigh said it enough <laughs> yes yes the pause yeah. said a lot yeah, yeah. Uh, he said he had the opportunity to go to eddie van halen's house mm. and pick up eddie's guitar turned up through eddie's rig and he played stranglehold and it sounded exactly like stranglehold yeah and and it's like you know and and there is some truth to, well, not just some truth. The majority of your sound just comes from you. It comes from your vibe. And where I find a lot of the little technical stuff makes a difference hmm. is it makes a difference in how you play. Um, if, if you pick up a Stratocaster, or let's say you play a Stratocaster almost all the time, yeah. right? And then you pick up a, a 335. Well, you're just going to play different. It's still you. You're still a human, but you're going to play different. You're, you're holding something you're not familiar with. Right. You know, if you play it through uh, a different foot pedal or play it through a different EQ or play with the delay, it sure it changes the sound. But what it really changes the approach of the musician. That's where you get the different sounds from is it changes the human. Yeah, that's an incredibly yeah. good point. I mean, you've got if you've got a 335, like that's what I play it. The woody tone of it, like you want to hear that. And you, you know, you play a note and because it sounds a certain way, you might hold it out because it sounds so good. You know, I, I think if you have if you have a certain level of sustain, you play differently, whether that's from your overdrive pedal or your compressor, whatever, it really causes you to change, you know, in real time, you're making different decisions because of what you're hearing. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. And, and I think it's a point that gets, um, I, I think some people know it, but haven't taken the time to really think about it. Like they know it because they've experienced it, but they don't take the time to sit and think about the science behind it. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, different picks make a big difference too. I mean, if you've got a thin pick, you I can't play like certain licks that I would play or ways of moving around the fretboard. It gets sloppy because the pick yeah. flexes and you've got a little delay there and you don't have the attack, which causes the tubes to not break up the same way. It re that makes a big difference too. I just saw a band uh, for the fifth time. They were actually on the ship that I was on um, called Raven Eye. If you ever get a chance to see Rave and I, they're so much fun. But they're a three-piece, but the guitarist plays with a thumb pick like a banjo guy. Mm -hmm. oh, and yeah. he, he said he mostly does it just because he got tired of dropping his pick because he's so, he, you know, he runs and jumps and he's all over the place. But it changes the way he attacks his guitar. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And it's neat. You know, it's just something you don't see all the time. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, at, I mean, look at Mark Knopfler or um, Lindsey Buckingham. Um, their style, obviously, is finger picking, but their tone that they get out of their guitar is so different than anybody else. I mean, that's very unique to them. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Wow. So, okay. So you, I mean, uh, 1500 interviews, I mean, that's, that's beyond impressive. Uh, what, um, what is it that you, I guess, would connect with on the most? Like, uh, you obviously spend a lot of time listening to albums and, and digging into the feel of what's going on behind the artist. Um, after all this time spending with, thousands of albums what what connects with you the most i didn't know it as a kid but i listened through producers ears uh and later when i interviewed bob ezra and he used a term that i use all the time now hmm. he said you didn't know it at the time but you had the ability to hear colors other people can't see right, right. and and you know what i was even when i tried to be in a band originally you speak the same language, but you use different terms because you think about it different. You know, musicians often think in terms of the note and the, you know, the flat or the sharp, whereas I wouldn't hear flat or sharp. I would hear dull and, or, um, almost like a synesthesia almost. Yeah. Like I would, I would hear in colors and textures, yeah. And so I would have trouble communicating with them because they would, all right, do this and this and this and, you know, do it in this measure and that measure. And sure, eventually I learned all that stuff, mm. but I, I didn't, I just didn't hear that way as a kid. I heard uh, more from an engineering and production standpoint. It's just the way my mind operated. And once I learned to speak their language, <laughs> I got a hell of a lot better, of course. Right. Um, but that's been my favorite. And some of my absolute favorite interviews over my career have been with other producers because I feel like I speak their language, right. you know? You, when you interviewed Bob Ezra, isn't he the, he produced Pink Floyd, right? Yeah, Pink Floyd, The Wall is the biggest uh, album with his name on it, but all the early Alice Cooper stuff. And that was the stuff that changed my life was the early Alice Cooper stuff. And, uh, you know, Peter Gabriel and oh, Aerosmith. Man. And it just, yeah, Bob's had a legendary, legendary career. Yeah. You, I saw part of your interview with with Bob Ezra, and you were talking about, I think it was Comfortably Numb. Uh, yes. with that orchestra in the background, and oh, Dave yeah. didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, you're talking about the same kind of stuff that hearing the, the greater picture from a, yeah, it's, you're not thinking about, each note you're thinking about the tones and textures and musical colors. Yeah. So, and then just as I went through my life, you know, I did start uh, as an audio engineer and then I did end up in a band and I have written songs and then I ended up on the radio and I've played songs and I've seen how management interacts and I understand how the PR stuff works. And so now, now at this point there, there isn't much that can come out that I haven't, understood an angle on and um paul o'neill who was one of my heroes he was producer as well for trans-siberian orchestra uh he said it's a lot like when a, a soldier becomes a reporter and then he interviews another soldier they're more willing to open up to him because he knows that he's experienced that i'm kind of getting to that now with a lot of bands on my second third fifth interviews with them it's like oh okay we know we can open up to this guy because he's been there Right. You know, 
Okay, so that, that I guess that kind of brings up a little bit of a a question for me, since you're talking about having four or five interviews over the years and getting into it, and uh, that brings up the question for me of the music industry and how it has changed over the years um, and what it's looking like now versus what it looked like 10, 20 years ago, and even where you possibly might think it might be going in the future. Well, the strangest part is everybody sees the advances because they're technical, technological, but in many ways, if you were old enough to remember it, and if you're not, you can talk to your parents or grandparents. <laughs> we have evolved now to a place where singles are the most important and concerts are the most important, which is exactly where we were in the late 50s and early 60s. Yeah. There were no full albums. Everything was 45s. And you would put out a 45 to get people to go to your concerts. That's where all the money was. It eventually changed with the invention of uh, abilities to play longer sets of music, whether it be vinyl or tapes. Right. Uh, and then people started getting into albums and, and everything changed. So in a way, we just returned. The cycle is just kind of returned back to what it was. So there is a template of how to be somewhat successful there. Uh, because it's what artists did in the late 60s or in the uh, early 60s. Right. Where it's changed now is back then people would still pr actually purchase music. Now we're getting to a place where people will pretty much just uh, subscribe and, and not own anything. Um, will that change? I don't know. It's, you know, uh, I, I hear people say all the time that, well, now that music's free, nobody's ever going to pay for it. But that's not necessarily true. Water was free my whole life, and now we pay for it all the time. Right. So, you know, how, how, how did that happen? Why didn't we just go, no, water's free. I'm not paying for that. Right. Yeah. Because it used to be. <laughs> right. So we might get back to a place. Uh, something I suggested probably wouldn't go over too well. But, you know, I, I think about a you know, an, an album from one of my favorite bands, I may have bought five or six different times because I had it on vinyl and I wore it out and then I had to have it on cassette and then I had to have it on CD. And it'd be nice to just buy a license to <laughs> that song or that band. And then you just have it for life. If they change formats again, you, you still have it. Right. Right. Um, that, makes sense. that might get somebody to spend money now that they haven't spent before, but I don't know. I mean, we're in a whole new frontier. And again, to bring it back to podcasting, it's what I like about podcasting. Nobody knows where this is going. This is a whole new frontier. Yeah, it really is. I mean, uh, the old model was, you know, you listen to a band that, of your choice, be it Pink Floyd or whoever it was, uh, and you would wait a year, two years for them to come out with an album. And now, like you said, it's come to the singles again. And, and with uh, the internet being so ready with, you know, uh, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and whatnot like that. Uh, you always have your eye on that band. And it seems as though it, it is geared towards this idea of um, singles and having your crowd, your respective fan base kind of follow along with that process. And the more that you bring them into that process, uh, the more that they're likely to follow along and, and purchase anything that you have, um, or even, you know, go the route of like Patreon and donate and, and give you money just because they love you. Right. Um, so it, it is definitely a changing kind of thing that's happening within the past, oh geez, even 10, 15 years is, is it does seem to be going down to the single based thing where, you know, every month or every two months, 
um, you're releasing something. There, there's a lot of good still out there in the music industry. Probably the biggest concern for me is, and I've used this test on a number of different people, uh, whether it be friends or people I've interviewed. Mm. Uh, you know, do you remember the first album you bought? And across the board, everybody does. And do you remember the first CD you bought? And across the board, everybody does. And then I say, what was the first song you downloaded? And they have no idea. <laughs> because you didn't physically hold it in your hand. Right. There was no physical, you bought air, essentially. Yeah. I mean, and so you can't remember. No, that's a great point. And, you know, as, as much as I love music and remember all of my first, I don't have any clue what the first download was. I don't know. I don't know. No. Yeah, I think with Napster, you were able to just download so much stuff. It was like, <laughs> you know, just download oh. a thousand songs. <laughs> right. Which would take, you know. Yeah. When Napster oh, happened, thousand minutes maybe, but yeah, Napster happened and LimeWire happened. It was like, mm -hmm. oh man, good night. <laughs> yeah, and and now uh, this is uh, interesting as well. The number one source in the world for music for the first time, I think it was last year that it was the first time it happened, isn't a musical platform at all. It's YouTube. Yeah, it's a video platform. But the number one place to access music across the globe is now YouTube. That's weird to me. It's nice yeah. that you can go to YouTube and type in the name of a song, who it's by, and you know maybe it's somebody's stupid video with like lyrics and their own personal pictures they put up there. Right. But at least you can hear the song, and half the time that's all you need. Like at least for me as a teacher, like I'm always kid wants to play something, and I'm like, okay, I don't know what this is, and it's I'm, not on my my subscription app, and I just look it up. But I think because we have access to everything, and because we're not paying for it. You also now run into a, a place where people will go, wow, I haven't heard this song in a while. They'll type it in and they'll only listen to 35 or 40 seconds of it. And then they move on to something else, but they're not invested in it. They didn't pay for it. Right. So they just listen for a few seconds and they move on. Yeah. Uh, so there's a bit of devaluation there. Uh, but you know, it, it's not all doom and gloom, but that yeah. part does exist. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I certainly remember sitting on the, on the floor, <laughs> with the album cover spread out listening to the entire album just staring at the liner notes and you know yeah. I, I don't think that doesn't happen as much anymore <laughs> yeah for sure yeah i used to keep i used to put a when i got a cd i'd put it in the car and it would stay in there for like a month like i'd listen on repeat just because it took so much more effort to switch out the cd and the cd player <laughs> you know yeah. yeah but now yeah with with your iPhone, you can just switch, you know, it's rare that I listen to a whole album now. Yeah. Yeah. Which is and, sad. Yeah. And speaking of like YouTube, I mean, yeah, you can go out and find uh, tons and tons and tons of music that is, you know, it's wonderful to be able to have access to all of that. But it is also interesting to me that in today's world where you have millions of people using Google and YouTube as the number one and two search across the world that you have artists like, uh, until recently Taylor Swift, um, but things like, um, let's see, Fleetwood Mac or Led Zeppelin or things like that who don't allow their music on YouTube. Um, I think that's kind of interesting. And there's actually a lot of jazz artists. And we've talked about this in the past as well. It's like Pat Metheny and one like that, where they won't allow any of their live um, material to be published on YouTube. I think that's kind of interesting 
that they're pulling all of that away from the public eye, where I kind of have this feeling that if they were to do that, they would give them more exposure. They kind of have this kind of old time feel of um, back in the day where, you know, again, before Napster and LimeWire and all that, where, you know, no, I want my I want my money because I worked hard on this and I, I you know, it's mine. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there comes a point where, you know, you don't need any more publicity. There comes a time when you're just big enough that you don't need it anymore. Right. And I, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm not in that place. I'll never be in that place. But I think if I was, you know, if I was Led Zeppelin, I would, I would restrict yeah. what could and couldn't, you know, and not just because I want people to buy it and I want more money. It, it, it's not about the greed. It's about having a little bit of mystery. It's about making people crave what you're doing, you know, because yeah. that was a big part of my passion for a lot of the bands that I really got into was that it wasn't always accessible. You had to work for it. Yeah. Well, I I think where um, my thought process that comes from is because I, I teach for a living and I have a lot of younger students who come in and they, they don't know who Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or, uh, you know, Aerosmith or any of these guys are. And now obviously it's up to us as, as teachers to be able to expose them to that. But um, I, if it, if I hadn't, that would have never happened because mom and dad, for whatever reason, aren't exposing them to that kind of music. And most often they're listening to pop music on the radio that's in the car or whatnot like that. And they may not get the chance to listen to Fleetwood Mac. Shame, shame on those parents. Oh yeah, I know, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> you know, every uh, district is different. Every school is different. Every state is different. Obviously, uh, my wife is a high school teacher. Gina teaches uh, all seniors, and I'm moved by the number of kids that are are aware of the history, hmm. and it's it's pretty cool. I mean, they might be. Uh, every bit is into, you know, a Greta Van Fleet or a Hailstorm, right. which is great because that's more their generation, but they also know who the doors are. And I'm like, all right, this is cool. Yeah. 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 It's, imp- I mean, as a music teacher, I think it's extremely important that you know where the roots are and, and then you get the history and you understand where all of the, the, the bands today get their influences from and you see, you know, oh, you really like this band? Well, check it out. These guys kind of pulled from this, this band and, and this yeah. Kind of genre and yeah, that was going on. So yeah, yeah, very, very important to kind of educate everybody in terms of what, where it all came from. My students, like, I feel like, two out of three, maybe one out of every two comes in and I like one of the first questions I ask them is, well, I probably first ask them what their favorite food is just to try to (laughs) break the ice. But then I, (laughs) then I'll ask them what their favorite band or favorite song is. And like, it's unbelievable how many of them say Imagine Dragons. I'm just like, have you heard anything else? Like, I mean, it's great because you can teach them. At that point, you go, I want to teach you what rock and roll is because you don't know. Yeah. yeah, they don't. <laughs> you clearly don't know. You don't understand the concept. Let's start yeah. over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, right. Here's a power chord. <laughs> Let's start playing some smoke in the water. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, you can get them playing um, Imagine Dragons in about in several lessons. Right. You know, three chords and, repeated the entire time. And that's great. Whatever the introduction to music is, right. you know, really. 
Uh, I will make fun of certain bands my my whole life and I will enjoy doing it. But at the end of the day, um, I have sort of a mantra that I uh, state probably far too often, but I, I really love it. And I tell people all the time, listen, I love Primus, but I don't want to live in a world where everybody loves Primus. Right. It, that's not what music's for. You're supposed to have your own thing. It's not supposed to be for everyone. There's another band out there for you, you know? So come on. I want a world of Primus. <laughs> that's, a, that's a twisted world right there. Oh, come on. Let's play both the best. <laughs> uh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Ba a band that I'm really, really looking forward to coming out with another album is Tool. I know they're going to be getting ready to come out with a new album. That's going to be, that's going to be pretty amazing. Haven't they yeah. been working on that for like a decade? 13 years. Oh my gosh. I don't know that they were working on it the whole time. Right. No, 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 I think no. they were working on not working on it. Mostly. Right. Right. I think that they were taking a hiatus. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, that's going to be a, a good one coming out. That was actually the, the very first uh, platinum album I ever got in my career was uh, Undertow. Really? Yep. The uh, I don't know how they measure it or how they figured it out, but uh, somebody at the label said I was the first person on commercial radio to play Tool. Um, you know, college stations had been playing them, but I was one of the first on a major station. And yeah, so that was my first platinum album was Tool. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So can you, I'm, this is going to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about because I don't, but what, what do you mean it's your first platinum album? Because you played them, you get credit for being there at the beginning? I don't quite understand. Uh, when the RIAA puts together a plaque mm -hmm. with, with an album on it, uh, certain people get their names on the plaque. Like obviously the band members get their own with their name on it and the record label and managers and then anybody else who might have been influential in a particular way, uh, maybe a promoter, a promoter who put them out on concert and made them millions of dollars. Or, um, I mean, it doesn't go down all the way to like the caterer or anything, but people that they decide were influential along the way yeah. will often get their own plaque. Although there's far less of them these days, and not just because there aren't as many uh, uh, sales but just I think the record companies uh, restricted the budget so they just don't send out as many as they used to. But yeah, yeah. if they thought you were real influential in helping to break a band or, or to break a particular album or, or played a role, then you would, you'd get a plaque with your name on it. Okay, that, makes, that totally makes sense. So they actually sent you a plaque saying you, by putting that tool on mainstream radio, you helped them achieve this yeah now most of the time at a radio station the plaque will come in with just the radio station name on it hmm. you know uh now i got a note saying because that one was sent to our radio station but the note was hey this is because you were the first one to play them and so on and so forth but i do have several with my names on them which are hanging behind me you guys can't see them but uh but yeah there are several that actually have my name on them so who which ones uh a lot of them are trans-siberian orchestra uh, that was uh, uh, the band that I've had the longest and mo most unique relationship with. Um, their creator, Paul O'Neill, uh, I met back from, you know, the sabotage days when I was first getting into radio. Right. And uh, we cemented a friendship early on. And uh, I even, I was never paid, which is fine. And I'm, I'm not looking to be, but I was essentially a consultant for the band for a while. They used to, uh, have me come to New York and sit in the studio in, in the giant multi-track studio and listen to uh, 
the album as it was in process and tell them what I thought radio might play and what they wouldn't play. And, you know, so just sort of guide them in the recording process. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, I've been in pretty deep with that band for a long time. I was going to say, I, I imagine having all these interviews over and over again with some of these bands, you've created quite the uh, friendship with some of these people. Yeah. I mean, most of them, it's just on sort of a, you know, I'll text you when I get to town basis or, or maybe you, you know, trade an email here or there. Yeah. There aren't a ton of bands that it's just a hang, you know? Right. Right. But, right. but yeah, I mean, if I, uh, and, I needed to email Steve Vai right now. He would email me back. So, you know, it's <laughs> cool. <laughs> Unless I'm being annoying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you ever, I mean, so you've played in bands. Do you, how much do you play now? And I guess my, my follow-up question would be, do you ever, ask i don't know for advice from somebody like steve Vai or you mean you're just in contact with so many players i don't know if you ever get to learn anything that helps you become a better player well maybe this is where you guys will come in as teachers i uh all right we're gonna go down a, a strange path i did a solo album in 1999 i believe and as it was coming out, it was the same time my first wife was diagnosed with cancer. Okay. I never really got a chance to go out and play that at all. And I never really got a chance to, to do anything beyond it. Everything became about fighting cancer. Yeah, and six years later, when she passed away, I've never found the energy or really even the desire to make music again. So it's been... Uh, well, she passed away in 2006. So I do I pick up a guitar now and then? Sure. Do I play a few notes on a piano? Sure. But I have no desire to write another song. It just, it left. When she died, it left with her. Yeah. It's, it's I, I don't know why. So I, I really don't ask for advice. I mean, every now and then, one of my friends will talk me into coming out on stage at a local gig and singing a song or two, and I do it, and I enjoy it. But then when the moment's over, it's just done. So I, I don't know if if uh, if I've made a mistake by moving away from the playing and creating of the music. I think I just found my happiness in going back to what I was as a kid and just listening. I, I think I just felt maybe I felt more comfortable in that space. You know, when I was in the creation of music, I was also in the creation or in the just surviving for life. And I just I don't some part of me doesn't want to go back there. Yeah. So a little darker than you wanted to go, but there you have it. Well, no, no, like, <laughs> no. Like you said earlier, uh, it's the truth and honesty is 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 what it's really all about. And obviously, our condolences to you. And um, yeah, um, it's you know that's never obviously an easy thing to go. And if, especially if it had a connection with her in any way whatsoever, it, I could understand that. And maybe someday in the future you would get that fire, but it's not now. And you feel really good doing the interviews and sticking with that. And it, and it makes you feel good by and going out on stage once in a while and sing with a couple buddies. That's, that's, that's cool. Yeah. So, yeah. I think you have to feed it for me, staying motivated to, to pursue learning new things on the guitar instruments in general it, it's all about feeding the the passion feeding the fire and it's it's interesting because for me a lot of that comes from listening to music 
you know, I, I hear something, I'm like, oh my God, I want to play that. How do I play that? And I'll like listen to it over and over and I'll, then I'll look up, try to find lessons on how to do that kind of thing or whatever it is. It's interesting that, you know, for you hearing so much good music wouldn't make you want to do that, but I wouldn't make, wouldn't inspire you to want to try to dive in a little deeper. Yeah, it, it makes me want to get back in the studio with bands <laughs> because that was my original love was being in the studio and watching how it's, you know, created from the artistic right. side. And and even when I was in a band, um, I never enjoyed playing live shows. It was never, I just, I was the mad scientist. Get me back in the studio. That's where I belong. Right. You know, I was always worried about the next note and, oh my God, what if I don't hit it? And what if this happens? And what if I come in late? And, and instead of enjoying what was going on and transpiring and connecting with people. I was so worried all the time that I never had any fun. Right. You know, which right. was a lesson I have now learned many times over is just, if you go out and have fun, other people will have fun. But I, I, I missed that in the early stages. Yeah. So, yeah. well, I, 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 I do, I connect with that a lot. I, there's something about being in the studio uh, that I really enjoy that, that, that whole process of, you know, the whole band coming together and creating something from nothing and, and the excitement from it, you know, let them do their thing. I'm going to be the guy behind the board and create. And yeah, I, I love that. That's, that's, there's, there's some kind of energy there that I just love. Yeah. The permanence of recording something and the fact that you can, you know, it doesn't matter if you mess up a take, like is it's, it is relaxing in a lot of ways. Once you get over that, we've talked about it before the, you've never been in the studio it can be nerve-wracking especially when you've got a tight budget and you're working against time but when you do when you are comfortable in the studio it is it is a very relaxing atmosphere to know that i can i can just try something and i can hear right. how it sounds if it's no good let's try something else and, and for a different lot of, guitar off the wall let's try a different yeah. amp a different setup everything for a lot of musicians the the biggest thing to learn is how to listen Things sound differently when you're in a studio. A lot of things are isolated. The mixes are different than what you're used to. You're hearing uh, a raw, direct sound from an amp as opposed to an amp mixed with two other guitar players and a keyboard and a drum. And that, um, until you get used to it, it's just a very alien place to be. And it's hard to just relax and be yourself when you're, in the, when you're learning to listen in a whole different way. But once you've learned that, oh, man, it's so great. So when you were talking about uh, going out to New York and listening to TSO and kind of get an idea of what they would play on radio, what, what exactly are you looking for? What are you listening for in terms of playability on the radio? Well, first of all, that was probably <laughs> 18 years ago or so. No, 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 I mean, no, that no, was no. in the early days. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's changed. Um, I'm just thinking about in terms of uh, any of our listeners who are or looking that route towards radio and trying to release towards a radio. I know it's hard for, especially now, well, I don't know. How hard is it to get from, um, in terms of where it was yesteryear to now, in terms of getting your music out on radio? Is it It's changed? harder now. Yeah. yeah, it's harder now because there's so many outlets uh, that radio is kind of constricted a little bit okay. uh, because there's a million other places that your, your music can go. Um, so it is harder now. Uh, the trick is there's there's a place in here somewhere, and it's a narrow place. You want to sound different enough that you stand out, right? but not so different that it scares program directors from wanting to put you on in the first place. 
Yeah, that's a small space. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, I mean, that is the sweet spot. Yeah. If you sound different than everybody else, uh, that it's going to catch our ear immediately. Like, wow, hey, that's different. But if it's so different and it's so out there, then where can I place it? How can I place it next to these other bands and how is it going to work? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the question that, that has to be answered. But here's the best part. If you're great at what you do, it'll find its way. You know, Tool didn't sound like anything else, but it was so good you couldn't deny it. So in, my, in your opinion, because I was just having a, a discussion the other day with a cl- colleague of mine, do you think... A and R guys are willing to take a chance as much as they used to, because no, because there's no budget for it. Right. In many cases, there aren't an A and R guy. <laughs> right. Right. The, the money is completely different now. Yeah. I mean, it used to yeah. be over a hundred grand for an album, and now you're lucky if you get ten grand. <laughs> well, they also used to just invest in a band, and they didn't care if you didn't hit on the first or second album because right. they were working towards your third and fourth. That's exactly right. You know, but, they were building towards that. Yeah. It's not that way anymore. Now it's more, and this isn't true of every record label, but now it's more, let's sign 15 bands, and if one of them hits, we'll keep them and cut the other 14. I, yeah. You know, as opposed to signing two and developing those two. Right. <laughs> it's, right. it's a different concept. Yeah, it really is. You know? but, you know, the discussion that we were having is, is that, you know, in terms of the variety of music that used to be on the radio, whether it was Steely Dan or Gloria Stefan or Cindy Lauper or whoever it was, you had a very wide variety of music that was on the radio. And now I don't, I don't see that as much in terms of radio. Uh, I don't see that much that happening as much. Yeah. Uh, we actually did. Um, I'm going to hold this up for a second. My uh, podcast is called the sound of, uh, which I do with Ann Carlini. And between Ann and I, we've been on the radio for 63 years. Awesome. So, I mean, we're both just, we, there isn't a band we haven't seen, interviewed, interacted with, played on the radio, something. Yeah. But one of our fantastic discussions was what makes a band timeless and would a band from a different era work today or would a band from today work in a different era? Okay. And, and we talked about like as great as Pink Floyd is, if there had never been a Pink Floyd and they came out today, probably too adventurous doesn't sound like any other bands probably scares most of the corporate program directors and probably doesn't get played right probably that's yeah. sad yeah it is but so how many other was employees are time. out there right now right. that aren't being it was a different time and right and yeah. in a, in a different era but then you do occasionally you know there's a band called nothing more i don't know if you guys are super familiar with them or not mm-hmm. uh, but they're on the newer side and they sound nothing like anything that's out there. They embrace intelligence and technology, but present it in, uh, I don't know, it's almost like a, like a, a, a Queensryche Operation Mind Crime level production, but yeah. blended with everything that's new and modern and hasn't been done before. <laughs> and it's so good. I was just getting to a point where, I, you know, I've seen 700 concerts or whatever. You feel like you've seen everything. And I see these guys and I'm like, oh, my God, I haven't seen everything. This is amazing. Wow. Um, yet radio's playing. Them. And, and they've even had a couple of number one songs at radio. So you can be totally different and still hit. Um, Al Petrelli uh, used this definition. And I love, love, love it. 
when people talk about luck or timing or any of that stuff, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. That's his definition. And I can't think of anything uh, more poignant because we almost all have opportunities, but sometimes we're not totally prepared when that opportunity comes. Right. Other people are totally prepared, but the wrong opportunity comes. It's not the right one. But when they say, wow, that band hit and they were lucky. Well, that band's been playing little dirt bars for 12 years. They were prepared. When the opportunity came, they were prepared. That's what luck is. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes you have to be willing to take the opportunity. It may not be the most opportune time in your life, but you have to be able to say, mm, I have to do this. Yeah. Uh, far better, you know, to, to take your shot and fail. Absolutely. Never take your shot. That's for sure. Yeah. And let's say you're not a hundred percent prepared, but you take that opportunity. It's most likely going to lead you to another opportunity somewhere else. And maybe you will be prepared. Yeah. 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 It's, it's pretty, to me, it's pretty amazing how the music industry has changed so much over even the past 20 years. Uh, it's just, it's pretty amazing uh, in terms of where it go. I, I, I do maintain that video killed the radio star. Um, <laughs> I, I, whenever MTV came into play, uh, it was something, not that it was a bad thing, um, and, and not that streaming or the internet or anything like that is a bad thing. It's just changed. It's different. Uh, the days of, like I said, sitting on their floor and, and going through an entire album and getting up to flip the album over and <laughs> and going that whole process of getting into the album and uh, that's 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 long gone and and maybe it may come around again maybe it is reciprocal I have no idea I, I'm I agree with your assessment but I think of a different type of video I think it's video games that killed the uh, the radio star although I don't think it's dead wow. but um I, i'll use this example of let's say only 10 percent of the people in the world are super creative and then of that 10 percent, how many of them are also motivated so you keep getting into these lesser percentages right mm. well in the old days the largest of that percentage would get into music and that's how you ended up with your led zeppelins your rolling stones your beatles whatever right, right. the led zeppelins of today just made that new Avengers movie, right? They just made Red Dead Redemption. Yeah. They're still the most creative people on earth, but instead of being inspired to go into music, they went into video games because it was this emerging thing. That's why video games went from little pong, <laughs> you know, little beeps and boops to you feel like you're watching a film. Oh my gosh. Video it, games are it, huge now as it is. <laughs> it, it, it's enormous, but I, there's still the same number of creative people in the world, but there's more options as to where to place that creativity. Mm, yeah. And most of those creative people went to those emerging places, whereas rock wasn't emerging anymore. There's still plenty of musicians out there, but it's not the first choice for uh, the, the super creatives. Yeah. At least that's my thought. Yeah. And I, I, and yeah, and I don't, I like uh, the late 80s. Um, you know, it, the late eighties for me, was very much about the guitar rock God. It was very much about, um, hair metal and, you know, all these huge guitar, like it was just, you know, Joe Satriani and Steve Vai. And it was like, the guitar was highlighted the late eighties and then grunge came along and that changed everything. Um, but I, it's kind of interesting to, to see where 
over the decades in terms of how guitar has been highlighted um it's kind of neat to watch that happen <laughs> yeah and i i feel like we're going through that cycle again right now uh after nirvana soundgarden stone temple pilots mm. bands sort of copied that mode copies a little strong they used they were influenced by that right they wanted to be that they wanted to have that sound and make their own version of it but and a lot of this falls on the producers and the, and the record labels over compressed and over you know fit everything into a box to sell everything 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 and it's we're now at a point where we're breaking out of that again yeah. if you hear a lot of these new bands uh the Greta Van Fleet album that just came out it's so wide open. It's not overly compressed. Everything breathes. It sounds like it was recorded on two track tape yeah. or uh, a two inch tape. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's amazing. The, the air and the breath that is in that. And now there's a whole bunch of bands that are influenced by the late sixties, early seventies coming out bands like rival sons and uh, Dorothy and joyous wolf. Yeah. Uh, Raven. Eye. I, you know, so we're kind of getting back to that raw energy that honest energy instead mm -hmm. of uh hey how can i do what seether did it's hey how can i just make my own statement right and thank I, thank goodness that the uh the sound wars are finally finally coming to an end i'm so glad that that, that it's finally being just rid of um it's just amazing how long that lasted and everybody's just like i want it louder i want it louder i want it louder and it's <laughs> it's it's ruined music the whole yeah. dynamics have, have just suffered for the past 20 years um and thank goodness you know soundcloud and itunes and and then all of these guest streaming sites have, have finally jumped on board and said okay we're going to set a standard and it's there is no actual standard yet but it's around what 14 luffs um and it finally, people are saying, okay, well, uh, pushing, I guess I should say more along the lines of producers and engineers are saying, you know, um, the more that you push that sound, um, the, the louder you try to get, you're going to get, you're, you're going to suffer. Um, yeah. and you're not going to be able to hear all the dynamics that are within, you know, within your album. Um, so it, it's nice to be able to hear a lot of that starting it, and it is, it's just now starting to come back, which, yeah. which is nice. And the key is you can feel the difference. There are people out there who may not be able to hear the difference, but you can feel it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I noticed all right, uh, from beforehand when we were talking, you had mentioned that you have a book. Yeah, it's uh, about five years old. Okay. Um, it was interesting. Uh, it it uh, kind of goes back to my first wife again, Sabrina, uh, who was also on the radio, by the way. Uh, her, she was on the radio in Detroit, uh, a little bit rock, but mostly she was a sportscaster. Oh. Um, and so during her struggle with cancer, she kind of kept a diary. And, uh, one of the last things she asked me to do was, could I publish some of her diary for people who were struggling, you know, with cancer? Well, that's wonderful. And so I spent a few years trying to write the story and I just couldn't do, it. I couldn't capture her. Right. I couldn't make it work. And a doctor suggested, why don't you write your story? Because you've had an interesting life. And when you get to the parts about her, use her words in her diary. And so it essentially became an autobiography. And I've got it hand near, nearby. From black to light. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For all the, the people listening, 
and now yeah. watching from black to light by, by, by Steve, Steve Black. Black. That's me. And so it's this kind of fascinating tale. A friend of mine, actually, after it came out, said, it's three love stories in one. It's, it's your love for music, your love for your first wife, Sabrina, and your love for your second wife, Gina, who kind of healed you after losing Sabrina. Yeah. Uh, so it's just all this, this real human element stuff, but it, it all takes place, you know, while I'm interviewing Alex Lifeson from Rush and while I'm <laughs> getting business advice from Peter Frampton. And while <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's so strange because it's two worlds uh, in the way it comes together. You know, uh, there's a moment in, in the book where um, Slash invites me to a Duff's birthday party. Mm. And it's like, I got to take care of my wife. Like as soon as I get off the air and I explained that she was sick and he took care of everything, had his manager take care of it. So I was able to bring my, you know, very sick wife at the time to this birthday party and slash just took great care of us. And it's like, wow. Yeah. So it became a kind of a really fascinating uh, way to tell the story. And then once I followed that advice, it turned out great. It's uh, still to this day, it's like five years old and it's still five stars on Amazon. So awesome. That's so yeah. good. Hey, congrats on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to yeah. feel good to have that out there. <laughs> yeah. Now if I can just write the next book. <laughs> oh it'll happen i'm sure yeah. it, it, in process it's in process it's not like you don't have the material man <laughs> that's great so what that, oh go ahead Jeff. i wanted to see i mean a birthday party with with slash and duff was that like when they were still as rowdy as they originally were was, was uh, it, it kind was of on relaxed the, at that point yeah it was on the velvet revolver tour Okay, mm -hmm. and uh, they were just out on tour. They happened to be in Detroit on Duff's birthday, and so hey, we're gonna have a cake for Duff tonight, and we're gonna gather, you know, everybody together, and it's gonna be after the show, and we want you to come. and And like I said, I just kind of explained, well, I've got to get home, I got to take care of Sabrina, and they were like, no, you don't. We got we got it covered. You bring her, we'll take care of the rest. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> wow, Amazing. I just thought they were they were uh, from everything I've read, they were pretty pretty wild early on yeah they're, uh, they're partying yeah there's there's been a you know there's a time or two that you run into things like that and i was this was fairly recently just a couple of years ago there was a uh, a post-show hang uh you know everybody was done working whether it was the bands or or interviews or whatever it was all done and uh somebody was starting to break out the cocaine and i'm like you know what i'm just gonna slip up guys yeah, um, right uh, time for me to leave. You guys uh, enjoy your night. <laughs> Not for me. Yep, got places to go. Yep, that's exactly so. right. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've had quite the journey, Steve. That's it's pretty amazing. I, I'm, I'm quite impressed. It's awesome. You've obviously gotten some great opportunities and actually, you know, taken the bull by the horns and and done a, a really good thing. That's, that's pretty awesome. Well, thank you. That's what it's always been about is was the experience for me. You know, I'm not a rich guy. I'll never be. And, and I don't care because I didn't do it for the money. Just yeah. followed my dream. Wanted to be a part of the, the music that inspired me. Try to, you know, give back when I can. You don't need to be rich when you're surrounded by the things that you love. And those yeah. things don't require lots of money. Yeah. Yeah, they fuel the fire and fuel their passion that's that's the most important i mean yeah. I, when, when you do move on to the next 
level. It's uh, it's all about what you've done and that you're happy with what you've left. It's, it's awesome. Well, when we uh, get together Wednesday, we're recording our next podcast. I'll, I'll be sure and tell our listeners to tune by to Fret Buzz to check out the latest. Awesome. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Steve. We do appreciate it. This, is, this has been wonderful. This really has. I, I loved hearing the stories, and, and uh, I'm glad we made a connection. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll stay in touch and continue the friendship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I hope you have a great Sunday and uh, enjoy yourself. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. Appreciate it. Have a good night. Bye. Yeah.